Hello and welcome to the Halloween edition of the Club Chimera Martial Arts Podcast. My name is Jamie Club, and my intention with these shows is to discuss various issues in the world of martial arts and self-protection that have inspired my teaching, training and writing. If you're interested in the material I cover, please check out the show notes at the end of this program and also my website, clubchimera.com. This episode is entitled The Last Night of the Ghouls and casts a self-protection eye over the historic crimes of Burke and Hare, a real-life horror story that reached its tragic climax on Halloween. Who are these two dealers of death, and what can we learn from their dark year of murder that could benefit our non-physical and physical skills training? I hope you enjoy the show. Halloween has long since lost its teeth as a night of fear. Pagans and Western Christians alike have traditionally respected the night as time to honour the dead. Many believe that this was the night when the dead walked the earth. The pagans put out offerings and the Christians held vigils, praying for the souls of their loved ones. Ideas surfaced that this is also the night that evil is very much abroad. Edinburgh, Scotland's capital is perhaps one of the most enthusiastic supporters of this festival in the world. The inhabitants of the city in 1828 would probably have done their best not to be out and about that night if they had the choice. The crowded streets and closes of Edinburgh's poorer neighbourhoods weren't the safest of places on nights that did not come under the shadow of superstition. Poor sanitation and overpopulation had helped create a squalid environment of inequity. With no clean drinking water, most individuals, rich or poor, worked through the day on some level of intoxication. One can only imagine the standards of alcohol that addled the minds of the communities that did their best to scrape a living around areas like Westport, where our story is located, and where a particular form of darkness was taking place. Mary Doherty, a poor Irish immigrant, who had travelled down from Glasgow in search of her son, was to find her own night of fear that year. On Halloween, she was to meet her end at the hands of two human embodiments of a mythical ghoul. Like this grisly figure of fantasy, these wretched villains had no respect for the dead. These men might not have been literal cannibals, but they were no lesser parasites on humanity. Mrs Doherty entered Rymer's public house on the morning of the 31st of October, begging for money. She hadn't eaten that morning and was at a loss. However, it appears that her prayers were answered. And who should she meet but a friendly fellow Irish immigrant, willing to buy her a wee dram? The neat little man who met her was charming and seemed most charitable. Upon hearing the unfortunate woman's name, and that she hailed from Inish Owen in Donegal, the new friend exclaimed that Doherty was also his mother's name. Wouldn't you know it, she also came from Inish Owen. My, they must be related! and that was a cause for celebration. The man invited her back to his home, with the new guest installed with food and drink, and chatting with his girlfriend, Helen Nellie McDougall, the man said he was going out to buy some whiskey for the party tonight. The man's name was one William Burke, described by his contemporaries as sociable. He was a cobbler by trade, and he was also a keen Irish trigger when the mood took him. He was also very used to opening up his home to guests. Often these guests were the poorest of the poor. Good to his word, he went back to Rymers to get the whiskey. Here he met up with his friend, fellow Irish immigrant, William Hare. Whereas Burke was known for his friendliness, Hare was a surly street thug, mean with his money and quick to fight. Nevertheless, the two had met almost exactly a year beforehand and shared lodgings for a while at Tanner's Close. Hare had inherited this from his former landlord, 
who had thrown him out after Hare had begun a relationship with his common-law wife, Margaret Laird. When the landlord had died, Hare had simply moved back in with her and used Tyler's Close as a lodging house. This had been where Burke and Hare had begun their dark business together. Now they ran it from two separate houses in Westport. Burke confirmed that this work was now on when he immediately informed Hare, in hushed tones, that he had a good shot for the doctors. A shot was a slang term used by the burgeoning trade of body snatchers for a corpse. A few who lived in and around the Westport district suspected that this pair were in this particular business, which had grown from an increased need and desire to train larger numbers of surgeons. Since the Napoleonic Wars, leaps in surgical science have been made. However, anatomy classes such as those run in Surgeon Square Edinburgh by the likes of Alexander Monroe of the famous Monroe Medical Dynasty, or his rival, Robert Knox, were hampered in their supply of bodies by certain religious laws in place. Surgeons were only permitted the corpses of unclaimed orphans, suicide victims and the bodies of executed criminals. This created the impetus for the body snatching business. The trade wasn't technically illegal, as no one owned a corpse. Provided the body was delivered naked, no crime was committed when a surgeon or his assistant made the transaction. Dr Knox filled his twice-daily lectures with the promise of a fresh subject to demonstrate on every time. Gangs of criminals robbed fresh graves to supply the medical hospitals of Edinburgh and London. Perhaps as an interesting side note for listeners of this podcast, that one of the most notorious London body snatchers was also a former boxer and a well-known boxing promoter called Ben Crouch, who was once dubbed King of the Resurrectionists for monopolising his local trade. The names Burke and Hare have become synonymous with body snatching, and yet this was never really their trade. It was a pretense. The closest the two had ever come to actual body snatching was at the very beginning of their business. Barely three weeks had passed since Burke and Nellie McDougall had moved in with Hare and Margaret Laird. A tenant of Hare's, an old soldier called Donald, had died whilst owing £4 back rent. Later, both men would lay the main portion of the blame for the crimes on the other, but it's likely, in this case, it was Burke who came up with a plan to pack Donald's coffin with bark chippings while secreting away the body for sale at Surgeon Square to recoup Hare's loss. Being the far better diplomat, he would probably have done the talking when it came to handing the corpse over, and proposed that he do this in order to provide not only the money owing to Hare, but a tidy profit they could both comfortably share. After making an easy trade with Dr Knox, the two had secured a regular buyer and hit upon a new business venture. On their first transaction, Burke and Hare had been able to circumvent all the obstacles typically faced by body snatchers. They cut out the problems presented by undertakers, grave diggers and night watchmen by snatching their body before it had even made it to the cemetery. However, the next time they would visit Knox with a body, the pair would have expediated their process further and moved from thievery to murder. One of Hare's lodgers, a miller called Joseph, had fallen ill with fever, and the odious pair reconciled themselves with the excuse that a potentially infectious person should be removed from the house. After plying Joseph with enough drink that he was virtually unconscious, one of the pair put a pillow over his face, whilst the other lay across his body to hold him still. Another easy transaction was made. It wasn't long before an unnamed English match-seller fell ill from jaundice whilst renting a bed at Hare's and Margaret was again worrying about an infectious tenant scaring off future business. His corpse would number as the second murder victim of the Grizzly too. However, as eager to make easy money as they were at spending it away on drink, Burke and Hare weren't going to wait around for another tenant to fall ill. 
Abigail Simpson was an elderly woman who lived a few miles away, but regularly walked into Edinburgh to collect charity from her ex-employer and hawk meagre goods such as salt in the streets. Hare, seeing an opportunity, took her back to Tanner's Close. Here he and Burke drank with her until she was too drunk to go home. The heavy drinking continued to the next morning, and the two men made the decision to act whilst poor Miss Simpson was insensible. Yet another smooth transaction with Knox, who apparently approved of its freshness, emboldened the two men to continue on their murderous work. Their next victim almost cut their evil career short. Mary Patterson, by all accounts, was a poor but strikingly beautiful girl who had grown up in Glasgow, but travelled, like many, to Edinburgh in search of work. She was often described as being in her late teens at the time of her death. She might have still been connected to the Edinburgh Magdalens Asylum, a notoriously strict Catholic halfway house that was often used as a refuge and reformatory to stop poor women from falling into a life of crime. Prior to entering the institute, Mary had apparently been made pregnant by a medical student who, already being engaged, immediately broke off the relationship. She then had befriended fellow Glaswegian Nellie MacDougall and lodged with her in William Burke, where the baby was delivered full term before being put into the care of a friend, and Mary had entered the Magdalen Institute. One Wednesday morning on the 9th of April, Mary and her friend of similar age, Janet Brown, entered William Swanston's shop on Canongate, when who should they meet there drinking rum and bitters but William Burke? The previous night, Mary and Janet had spent the night at Canongate Watch House for disturbing the peace. Despite the efforts of the Magdalen House, it would appear that Mary had fallen on bad times again. It, they had both been lodging at the houses of two women, it was rumoured, were madams. Burke, presumably recognising Mary, approached them bought them drinks and invited them to continue the merriment at his brother Constantine's place. They agreed. Janet Brown was to escape a murderous end thanks to jealous Nellie MacDougall bursting in on the partying. It would appear she had little sympathy for her old friend Mary and was more concerned about Burke's other intentions. After a violent row broke out between the couple, Janet was escorted onto the street. Meanwhile, Mary Patterson lay in a drunken stupor. Hair was fetched and the poor tragic girl's life was ended. Janet Brown would return later that night asking after her friend and probably just avoided getting killed herself when she agreed to drink with Hare in a local pub. Fortunately, the owner of one of the houses where the two girls had lodged sent a servant to retrieve Janet. En route to Surgeon Square, Burke and Hare, who were transporting Mary's body in a tea chest, were followed by schoolboys who chanted, They're carrying a corpse. Upon arrival, they were questioned by a medical student called William Ferguson about how they came by the body whereby Burke concocted a tale about an old woman selling it to them after the unfortunate girl had drunk herself to death. Ferguson had met Mary before. Indeed, she was an attractive girl and fairly well known in the area. Most accounts state that at least one of the students recognised Mary. Janet Brown, always strenuously denied, claims that Mary was a prostitute, but this story persisted as a perverse morality play in the press about the evils of this profession and has been used as the basis for several dramas based on the murders often with the story of Mary's previous ill-fated romance with a medical student added in as an extra-class-conscious plot element. Other students also remarked that her body was still warm. Days later, Burke got into an argument with an employee of Robert Knox, David Patterson, no relation, who questioned how he obtained these fresh corpses. Burke rebuked him and told him that he would have words with Dr Knox and if Knox was supportive of this line of questioning, he would cease doing business with him. That ended the matter for the time being. The body was pickled and shown off by Knox as an example of the perfect human form for at least three months. He invited the artist John Oliphant to create a line drawing of Mary's corpse, which he posed as Venus. This seems particularly macabre and in bad taste even before knowledge of her murder was revealed. 
An almost necrophiliac interest in viewing Mary's body seems to have taken place at Knox's lectures. There is an apocryphal tale that the famous surgeon Robert Liston, known for his charitable interest in the underclasses, also recognised Mary and punched Knox for displaying the corpse in such a cavalier manner, ensuring that her remains be respectfully buried. There is no evidence to support this story. However, the entire sorry tale highlights the scary bystander links that allow these crimes to continue. It's a familiar theme throughout the whole story of Burke and Hare. Janet Brown kept looking for Mary Patterson, but she was shooed away by Burke's brother, who claimed he had no idea where Mary had gone. An atmosphere of willful ignorance and apathy within her own community, and a community of those who were supposedly training to preserve lives, had allowed a young, well-known and well-liked teenager to be consumed by the ghouls of the lower and higher levels of society. Unfortunately, all these near misses with Mary Patterson did not dissuade Burke and Hare from continuing their business, nor did it get them caught. If anything, it brought the family business closer together and a less reckless operation was executed to procure future shots. Some of them, anyway. The greed of the money, encouraged by the eager demand of their pair, eased whatever moral scruples they may have possessed. They preyed on the homeless, the weak and the destitute. They even killed a grandmother and her mute grandson on the same night. Sometimes the victims happened upon Tanners Close. However, for the most part, Burke and Hare scouted for potential prey at their various local haunts. They would lure these victims, who they had judged would not be missed, fly them copious amounts of drink in a secluded room, and then suffocate them by pinching their nose and clamping a hand over the mouth. Those few people who did come looking for some of the victims were often in danger. The daughter of an elderly prostitute killed by Burke and Hare attempted to track her mother down, but ended up being murdered by Burke. Eventually, Burke and Hare fell out when Hare apparently carried out a complete operation and transaction whilst Burke was away. Burke moved into a nearby lodgings. The two soon made up, but this was perhaps the beginning of problems in their partnership. The 15th victim would prove as reckless as Mary Patterson. James, daft Jamie Wilson, was a well-known young vocal eccentric. He enjoyed wandering the streets, much to the concern of his mother and sister who looked after him. No matter the weather, he could be seen without a hat on his head or shoes on his feet. It has been stated that his feet were deformed and this was the reason why he wouldn't wear shoes. He also had an odd halting gait. It made him very recognisable. However, despite his nickname, Darth Jamie might have been a savant. Apparently he never begged, but entertained people for money, food and snuff, which he was particularly fond of, by performing incredible calculations on the spot. His main piece was being able to match the day of the week correctly with any given date. He was known to be gentle-natured. To many in Westport, he was a friendly face who entertained the local children with silly stories and was often the butt of their teasing and horseplay. These traits, along with a look of confusion on his face, were possibly what inspired Margaret Laird to set him up at Tanner's Close before going to Rhymer's to buy some butter and give Burke a light stamp on his foot, the signal that a shot had been selected. Darth Jamie was looking for his mother and was used to the kindness of locals. Getting him to Tanner's Close wasn't a problem. However, despite his obvious susceptibility, he was not the usual type of victim that Burke and Hare selected. Margaret Laird had simply seen him for a local half-wit that would not be missed and easily drunk into unconsciousness before being easily dispatched. Instead, he was possibly even more well-known than Mary Patterson, and, unlike many of the locals, did not enjoy drinking to excess, having a preference for his snuff. He was also now very anxious about seeing his mother, who he had been assured by Margaret Laird would be there immediately. Burke and Hare led Jamie into the room that Burke used to live in, and Margaret Laird locked the door behind them, sliding the key underneath. 
Jamie eventually lay down on the bed, but refused more whiskey. Not being fully intoxicated and still being a young man, no matter how disabled, he put up a spirited fight against both of these attackers, possibly biting Burke in the testicles, until he was eventually suffocated. Margaret Laird subsequently fell out with Burke when he refused to pay her anything out of his share of the money they received from Knox. Previously, she had received a pound for the use of her lodgings, but Burke reasoned that he no longer lived there. They didn't talk for three weeks. Again, like Patterson, Jamie was recognised by the students. Knox apparently denied the body was his, but had the head and distinctive feet severed and disposed of, nonetheless. The normal procedure for body snatchers was to dispose of their corpses' clothes, as they could be arrested for theft. However, it would appear that Burke and Hare didn't always do this with their victims. In the case of Darth Jamie, Hare kept the unfortunate man's snuffbox and his clothes were distributed amongst Constantine Burke's children. By this stage, Burke and Hare must have thought themselves untouchable. They were operating in circles of apathy and or connivance, be they Burke's family, their own common-law wives, their neighbours, or the surgery where they sold their corpses. Halloween would just be another day and a night of grim business as usual. Poor old Mrs Doherty was easily convinced to drink herself into a stupor as she celebrated with her newly found relative. As others feared the imaginary spectral evil that walked outside, Mrs Doherty was totally unaware of the very real evil she was parting with on that fateful night. This was despite her talking with Burke's next-door neighbours, the Conaways, who insisted that Burke was not a Doherty. Various people saw the perpetually drunk Mrs Doherty in the presence of either Burke or Hare that day, including Burke's cousin Brogan and another neighbour, Mrs Law. Throughout the day, Burke and Hare manoeuvred people out of the way and Mrs Doherty into position to have their private party, where they would dance with their women and Mrs Doherty would sing. The Conaways would later report they heard the noise of scuffling and fighting in the middle of the night, but this was not unusual when it came to Burke and Hare. A nearby grocer would later say that he heard a woman's voice briefly scream, for God's sake, get the police! There's a murder here! However, amidst this sea of seemingly blind and uncaring bystanders, Burke and Hare had not reckoned with Burke's tenants, the Greys, would be them who would bring about the demise of Edinburgh's most infamous murderers. The Greys had been put up at Tanner's Close in order to allow Mrs Doherty to have her party at Burke's lodgings. They would return twice to their original dwelling, the first time, they would see Burke behaving in a strange fashion in the presence of Nellie McDougall, Mrs Conaway, Mrs Law and his young cousin Brogan. He was splashing whiskey all over the room, particularly over the bed in his room and the straw underneath on the pretense that he wanted the bottle empty so he could get some more. He was clearly quite drunk. Mrs Gray had left some of her child's clothes at Burke's house when they had been hastily moved the previous day. They were missing a stocking and Mrs Gray went to inspect the straw at the foot of the bed. Burke quickly admonished her to keep out of there. Mrs Gray, Mrs Conaway and Mrs Law had all asked Nellie McDougall about what had happened to the little lady that they had been entertaining all day and night. Nellie replied that the woman had become too familiar with Burke and she had kicked the damn bitch's backside out the door. Once again, Burke's residence would be a busy place on All Saints Day. Eventually Burke would leave to discuss the next transaction with Robert Knox, that is, to get rid of Mary Doherty's body. It was when he had left without anyone to guard the bed that the Greys made their second visit. Suspicious of his earlier behaviour, Mrs Gray looked under the bed and made a gruesome discovery. She and her husband first uncovered an arm, and then they would be met with the body of Mary Doherty, stripped and ready for delivery, staring up at them with blood still on her face. Upon leaving the property, both Greys would meet with Nellie McDougall and asked her about the presence of the corpse. 
They both would be begged not to say anything. Nellie offered them hush money, but they were having none of it. As the quarrel made it out onto the street, a similarly concerned and desperate Maggie Laird joined in with the begging. The Greys lost them in a public house before Mr Gray informed the police and Mrs Gray informed Mrs Conaway, who agreed to put them up. Mr Conaway would tell Burke that there was gossip he had killed Mrs Doherty. Burke laughed it off. He had already brought a tea test from Rymers, a common form of transport he and Hare used for corpses, and deposited Mrs Doherty's carcass with David Patterson at Knox's premises. Burke's lodgings would be inspected by Sergeant John Fisher with Mr Gray, where blood was found on the straw. The body would be found still in a tea chest in Knox's cellar. Two days later, the two murderers would be arrested, ensuring a macabre theatre of their vile lives. Shockingly, and despite the amount of witnesses, authorities feared there was not enough evidence to convict. Much of this was down to concerns about what would be uncovered in the medical profession. However, public outrage was now in full force. The revelation that the likes of Darth Jamie had been a victim of the two killers had aroused a tremendous amount of rage on the streets. Various pretty dreadful poems and ballads were created in honour of this very innocent victim, some of which made the papers. Burke and Hare got their own children's rhyme that labels Burke the butcher, Hare the thief and Knox as the old boy who buys the beef. In the end, a deal was put before William Hare to turn King's evidence. This granted him immunity from punishment in return to be a witness for the prosecution. Evidence that he would supply would see his partner hanged. Nellie MacDougall's case was not proven and she was constantly having to escape vengeful mobs wherever she went in Scotland. Finally, Newcastle police, finding it hard to cope with her protection, escorted her to the border of Durham, from where she disappeared from the pages of history. All other members of Burke's family escaped arrest. Maggie Laird was separated from Hare when no case was put against her. Like Nellie, she was also pursued by angry mobs wherever she went, despite holding a child in her arms, and had to be constantly put into protective custody. Her last known proven whereabouts was on the 16th of February the following year as she boarded the Fingale from Greenock to Belfast. William Hare escaped a private prosecution from Darth Jamie Wilson's family. He had been imprisoned for months for his own protection and in case the family of Mary Doherty were to launch their own private case against him. In the end, even a civil action for damages could not be made as by then he owned nothing and technically was homeless. His protective escort across the country under the guise of Mr Black resulted in two riots occurring in Dumfries, the first when the coach reached the King's Arms and the second at the county jail, where Hare had been put for his own protection. Hare was smuggled out during the early morning hours and escorted to the English border. The last official sighting of the man was in Carlisle. Various stories appeared in the press that he had been lynched in Londonderry, Ireland or New York, USA, or he had become a farmer in Ontario, Canada, or a convict transported to Australia. The most popular and persistent story, popularised by Atlee's famous trials of the century, was a Victorian tale that merged wishful, retributive thinking with bogeyman myth-making. The story goes that whilst working as a labourer, his fellow workmen discovered his identity and blinded him with quicklime. By the 1870s, a blind beggar accompanied by a dog was said to be William Hare walking the streets of London. The poor man was actually a Thomas Ware, who proved his identity in court, but the story stuck and he has since been immortalised in both fiction and true crime books as the ultimate incarnation of the notorious murderer. Dr Robert Knox's career was far from finished. His lectures continued to be very well attended to the point that he moved his halls to accommodate larger audiences. However, this was not to last. He received a lot of public criticism, and there was much jeering from outside his lectures, but he never missed a single session. Despite declarations that investigations would be made into his dealings with Burke and Hare, 
No charges were ever brought against Robert Knox. He was harried to resign certain positions such as Army Commission and Curator of the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh Museum. The rest of his career was rocky. He was eventually expelled from the Royal Society of Edinburgh for falsifying a student certificate. His elitist beliefs in ethnology marred much of his reputation, and it has been argued that this is what allowed him to turn a blind eye to the methods used by his corpse suppliers. Certainly, Knox continued to purchase cadavers from notorious body snatchers long after the crimes of Burke and Hare had been made public. After the death of his wife, he moved to London, where he worked for the Free Cancer Hospital until his death. William Burke was tried and convicted on Christmas Day, 1828, giving the Edinburgh general public the present they all wanted. On Wednesday, the 28th of January, he was hung amidst cries of Birkin, an expression that has since become slang for his type of murder, and bring out hair, and bring out Knox. His execution was watched by hundreds, and windows of nearby buildings were rented out to spectators. Amongst them was the Scottish literary giant Sir Walter Scott, who had to share his window, such was the demand. Scott never wrote publicly about the crimes, but he revealed a lot in his correspondence, particularly in his condemnation of Knox. In accordance with judges' orders, Burke was publicly dissected by Professor Monroe, Knox's arch-rival surgeon lecturer. His theatre was packed to such a degree that police had to be called in to restore order. There were two public viewings of the corpse after the dissection, whereby over 27,000 people filed through the college. The body was then stripped of flesh and the skeleton was preserved for display in the Anatomical Museum of Edinburgh University, where it can still be viewed today. Burke's skin was also preserved and made into various gruesome souvenirs. The Edinburgh Police Museum has a matchbox made from Burke's skin on display. Surgeon's Hall, off-site to the general public, has a pocketbook bound in Burke's skin. Apparently, even Charles Dickens had a bookmark made from Burke's skin. Burke and Hare's crimes did not immediately bring about a change in medical law, allowing surgeons a wider supply of corpses that put body snatches out of business. In fact, the most obvious and immediate influence their crimes had apart from the copious amount of tabloid stories, essays and fiction it inspired, is the copycat killings that began to take place. There had been at least one case prior to Birkenhair some 70 years previously by Helen Torrance and Jean Waldy, who murdered an eight or nine-year-old boy, John Dallas, to sell to Edinburgh's medical students. However, after Birkenhair, a gang that would be known as the London Burkers started up in Bethnal Green, apparently modelling their crimes on the two notorious Edinburgh murderers. Finally, the Anatomy Act was made law, and body snatching became an extinct crime in Britain. So much time has passed since these days that it's easy to look upon these crimes and their times as a dark period long detached from today. To many, their crimes seem as abstract as stories of witch burnings in medieval Britain. There are stories of murders being committed for the sale of organs on the black market, and even one case in Columbia in 1992 where it was claimed 14 people were murdered for use in medical schools. However, there is plenty within the story of Burke and Hare that we may use as source for modern self-protection learning. Firstly, we come to the modus operandi. Burke and Hare generally acquired their victims by targeting those they perceived to be vulnerable and alone. Target hardening is a vital part of self-protection training. This is why attitude must be taught first in a person's personal security training before anything else can be realistically confirmed to be effective. There's no point in being aware if you don't have the attitude to act upon that awareness. A hardened target is visibly alert to his or her surroundings and acts in a purposeful manner. Quite simply, switch on when you don't know an area. If you need to ask for directions, do so in a confident manner and maintain your personal space at all times 
being especially aware of other people taking notice of you asking for directions. There has long been fears and discussions behind the spiking of drinks used by criminals, usually rapists, to render their victims defenceless. Drugs like rohypnol, ketamine and GHB have earned a terrifying reputation. However, the most common drug used by criminals to take down a victim's defences is alcohol. Birkenhair knew this, and they used it both to give themselves Dutch courage and to take down their victims' inhibitions and to eventually incapacitate them. Drinking to excess is not smart from a self-protection point of view. There really is no other way around this one. Secondly, we come to a subject that I touched upon in my very first podcast, and that is long-term self-protection. This is the culture that allows criminals like Birkenhead to thrive. They were opportunists. They're often portrayed as cunning villains, but they're often drunk and relied a lot upon sheer temerity to get away with their crimes. Looking at the huge mistakes they made and their general recklessness, I don't think there's a lot to support the argument that they had any extraordinary criminal ability. Knowing that possessing the clothes of victims was the only way body snatchers could be arrested, and also that the possession of clothes of victims that others were now looking for demonstrates how stupid they were in their actions. They were cowardly, generally lazy, often complacent, and showed no compassion for their victims. It is this sort of confidence that allows criminals to make short work of their naive and inexperienced prey. They also took advantage of the culture around them. In safeguarding courses, we are taught about the links in a chain that allow abuses to victims to continue unheeded. In the case of domestic abuse, an individual is abused in their home by people they trust. The visible signs may be seen at work or school if the victim is a child, and friends might note changes in their personality or distinctively unusual behaviours. Eventually, should the crime be uncovered, an entire series of links are put together that present a chain of responsible people that should have acted sooner. Often, when we read shocking true crime stories, we're surprised by how many different people either didn't notice that there was something terribly wrong or turned a blind eye. Bringing the matter closer to home, this type of crime is never larger than when it becomes an institutional abuse. The martial arts world has a lot of questions to ask itself regarding the way so many different schools allow their use of hierarchy and authority to impose their will on susceptible students. We, as teachers in the martial arts world, have a responsibility to show zero tolerance for any of our fellow martial artists that permit instructors and senior students to behave in a way that would not be allowed in any government-regulated educational establishment. Birkenhead's actual physical method is virtually outmoded. In their day, it was a simple way to kill an individual whilst not leaving any obvious signs of violence. This method would not work with today's forensic scientists. Mind you, given Burke's description of Darth Jamie's end, and the signs on Mary Doherty's corpse, it would appear that the likes of Robert Knox really weren't paying a lot of attention to how the victims had actually died. Nevertheless, if we look at this in the abstract, suffocation is not an uncommon method of killing, and being attacked by more than one person is certainly a scenario worth training for. This also brings us to ground fighting. If a fight does go to the ground, a serious student of self-protection needs to know how to move against a resisting opponent. Furthermore, although we really shouldn't be training about being specifically burked, there is a lot to learn about fighting against someone trying to compress your chest and also the blocking of your airwaves. These are likely situations that you will face if you're fighting from your back. According to popular mythology, a ghoul is an evil spirit that eats from graves. Imported from pre-Islamic Arab culture, the ghoul does not have a fixed appearance in popular imagination. However, many stories tell of their grisly deeds. Birkenhair's story is a tale of real-life ghouls. I don't like assigning supernatural beings to real-life criminals. However, the ghoul is one exception. The creature provides us with a metaphor for the lowest type of predator one can possibly imagine. Birkenhair certainly fit that description. However, there were plenty of other ghouls in their story. 
when the Westport murderers were exposed, a type of grim, ironic poetry took place. There were plenty that bade for blood and did it under the guise of self-righteous indignation. They wanted to see a man killed, his body dissected, and to buy souvenirs from his corpse because it was their justice. Yet, where were any of them when these 16 murders were being committed under their noses in Edinburgh? Where were the public house owners, regular patrons and shopkeepers when Birkenhair regularly picked up their shots? Where were the morals of those who saw a ready supply of fresh corpses finding their way into packed lecture halls? In the end, it was individuals such as Janet Brown who never gave up looking and inquiring for her friend and eventually identified their clothes, and of course the greys that refused to be part of Birkenhair's evil crimes and chose to blow the whistle on them, despite being destitute themselves, that set the example for humanity. Some of the biggest monsters we face are cultures of apathy and denial. Thanks for listening to this year's Halloween edition. I hope it provided some food for thought. If it did, be sure to send me your feedback. Please subscribe to this podcast via iTunes, Stitcher, Buzzsprout, or whatever platform you choose. If you can leave me a good rating and a positive review, I'll be most grateful. I've been busy researching my long-promised and somewhat late episode, The Ogre Myth, during my recent city break to Rome. This is intended to be in my next show. In the meantime, be sure to keep up to date with everything Club Chimera. I have a seminar planned for Essex, England in March that will cover both my children's self-protection and my martial arts cross-training. Details of this will be posted up soon. Please like and follow my Facebook page, follow my Twitter page and YouTube channel. As mentioned on the previous show, I have a set of videos called Clash of the Forearms online now. And for those who'd like to read some of my non-martial arts writing, the first book I wrote, The Legend of Salt and Source, is being released before the end of this year as a special anniversary edition. Thanks for listening. <laughs>